give up on us. We're glad to see you tonight. Grab your hymn book, stand to your feet. Brother Ken's going to come lead us now as we stand and worship the Lord. Thank you for coming back tonight. Brother Ken, lead us this evening. Amen. We'll be singing out of Red Book tonight, hymn number 150. In your Red Book, page 150, the dearest friend I ever had. We'll, we'll try to sing all three verses tonight. We'll see how that goes. We don't wore the choir out already, so they may be taking it easy. So help us sing it tonight, hymn number 150.
got something I'm going to share with you in the service this evening uh, in the message tonight that I hope will be a blessing to you. Uh, we're living in an era of society and history that has all but turned its back on God. I know you know that. We're living in a part of our country's history that seems to have forgotten the very foundational principles on which we were built. And so the question that I'm going to ask you tonight is how do we survive and how do we thrive in that kind of environment? That's what we'll be preaching about tonight, and I think it's critically important uh, today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Brother Peck, come pray for us. Uh, you join Brother Peck as we go to the throne room together this evening. Brother Peck. Lord, we thank you for the service you've already done this morning and we've had. Lord, you're blessed. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for the souls of being saved. Lord, we don't want to ever take it for granted that, uh, Lord, you're meeting with us and touching lives and drawing us close to you and giving us direction and guidance. Lord, bless us, Lord, to be that shining light for our families and loved ones. And, Lord, we need to be leaders, the men of the church and the women. Lord, I help us, Lord, to be leaders of our household. Lord, we just want to serve you and be what you have us to be. Lord, we pray again for the services this evening. Lord, we thank you for the services that you had this morning. We also look forward to what you're going to do this evening. And Lord, we thank you for what you've already done in our lives. We look forward to what you're going to do in the future. And what this church, Lord, I pray, Lord, you just reach down and guide this church, Lord, in the right direction. Lord, bless our bless our pastor, Lord, and him, our assistant pastor. Lord, use them, Lord, to be the leaders that you'd have them be, to lead the church and to do your work and will. Bless us, Lord, to be what we should be. Lord, we thank you today for the word of God, the King James Bible, Lord, that you've not been, it's not been messed with, Lord. It stands strong still today after all these years. Lord, we just want to thank you. We love you. Thank you for Calvary and the blood that you shed. Lord, we could just go on praising you, thanking you all day long. It wouldn't be enough. Lord, we love you. Bless this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's good, Brother Peck. Bless your heart. You can be seated. As we look at our Summer of Prophecy series this uh, summer, one of the things that we'll be talking about is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what this song's all about. It just says, I'm going to a wedding. You listen now. I hope it'll bless your heart. bride takes daddy's hand we all stand and smile as they march down the aisle very soon there'll come a day when heaven's bride will be called away we will rise to meet our groom up in the sky i'm going to wedding in heaven when the lord calls for his own what a celebration jubilation when we gather Oh, 
this evening. This is one of the first songs Renee and I wrote many, many years ago. And I like the words to it, even if we did write it, because it reminds me that the sweetest presence we ever feel is at the feet of Jesus. Rebecca does such a good job on this song. I want you to listen to it. Let it speak to your heart at his feet.
choir. Thank you for coming early tonight and practicing and getting some things ready. Uh, uh, don't forget, teens if you and young adults, if you have not signed up, for a teen conference tonight, you last night, everything gets sent in tomorrow, so please make sure that you do that. We'd sure appreciate it. And again, I want to say thank you to those that uh, came down and supported our, our, our lunch today. Uh, drive through window and threw it out there to you. You got, got it for five bucks, uh, five dollar meal. You can't beat it. And I sure appreciate it. Everything was sold out. Is that right, honey? Sold out all of it. Uh, amen. If I didn't know better, Charlie Holland, I think you and Brother Cassidy know what y'all were doing. Amen. Amen. What's that? Signature barbecue. Amen. Coming to a storefront window near you. Charlie Holland BBQ. Amen. But thank you all for helping us out with that. Again, we are so grateful for your supporting that uh, and, and helping with our kids to get them uh, ready to go to camp. Or our conference, rather. Uh, all right, let me get the ushers. Make your way down this uh, evening. Mr. Nay, if you all would play for us tonight. Biggs family were supposed to sing, and, of course, they're not able to tonight. So you continue to pray for them with their continued health battles, all three of them actually, and I know they'd appreciate it. We're going to pray, and then we'll have a song of fellowship. But Lord, thank you for the time tonight. Bless the offering. May it be what you'd have it to be. Lord, I pray for the Biggs family tonight. Uh, their place here to sing tonight, they're not able to do because of the health, but Lord, I pray that you touch them, both of them, as they continue to recuperate. Lord, I will thank you and praise you now in Christ's name. Amen. Take off, guys. Like an old time Christian with a Christian love to share. 
All right, thank you so much. Uh, uh, somebody messed up on the song schedule. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but his initials are Pastor Greg. Amen. So we're in for a treat tonight. Amen. Take it away, y'all. chapter number one. Several weeks ago, in fact, it's actually been a couple of months ago now, uh, I gave you a little bit of a uh, intro into this, this section or this passage that is in fact a personal testimony passage for me. Uh, I like all the Bible. Amen. There's no part of it that I don't like. It steps on my toes, but, but I like it. And this part of the scripture is, along with many other passages, uh, is very special to me because it is a reminder to me, and I hope it will be to you, that you can live for God in a godless world, that you can live for Christ, that you can be a Christian, even in a non-Christian world. Oftentimes, when I have the opportunity to talk to people, especially young people, teenagers, young adults, 
I hear them talk about the difficulties they face in their surroundings, in their environment, in their peer group. And I understand that there are challenges that you face today. But please listen to me carefully. You never get to the point in your Christian life where being a Christian is easy. I recognize that there are challenges today, especially in the public school arena, that most of us as adults never faced before. I'll talk a little bit about that tonight. But I also want you to understand that God has you where you are at such a time as you are for a reason, and that is so that you can influence the world around you, not have that world influence you. Daniel chapter number 1 is a reminder to us that this time period is not the only time period in which the compass of morality has been broken. You have to amen tonight when I say that our world has abandoned standards of morality, respect for God's word, and frankly abandoned a basic tolerance of the people of God. The age of innocence that marked the midpoint of the 20th century is over. By all accounts, this is a different world today than what it was in the 1940s, 50s, and the first part of the 60s. And that leads to some major life questions. What are we to do? We know we should stand up. We know we should speak up. We know we ought to make a difference in the world around us. But I think oftentimes people throw their hands up and simply say, I don't know what to do. How do we stand for truth, stand for what we know is right, yet still love people who are trapped in sin? How do we affect change in the world around us? We know we should. We don't know how. Daniel chapter number 1 gives us four men who took a stand. Four men who said, though we're in a hostile environment, though we're in a world that does not know our God, we are going to take a stand for our God. We know them as Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I submit to you that the time in which they lived and the environment in which they operated was just as bad, if not worse, than our environment. In many ways today, folks, I'll not give you much of a history lesson, but to say this, in many ways, the culture of today in America mirrors the culture of ancient Babylon. Our experience in our culture, our experience in this culture, also mirrors the experience of these four men. I want to look at several verses tonight. Three points. I've already given you the first one a few weeks ago. I'll quickly state it again, and then we'll get into the heart of our message tonight. First of all, I want you to note with me their trials. Their trials. There are many things being thrown at these young men all at once. Again, for the sake of a history lesson. When Babylon would take over an, a, a country or a territory, they did not just go in and inhabit it. They did not just take over and enslave the people. That's the way the Romans operated 
The Romans would come in and just take over and make all the locals their slaves. But the Babylonians at this time, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, did things very differently. You see, he wasn't just concerned about the now, but he was much worried about how his kingdom and how his empire was going to be sustained. So when they took over a new territory, they would swoop in, they would take up the wealthiest kids, they would take off the most best-looking kids, they would take off the leader's kids, and they would assimilate those kids into becoming Babylonians because they knew, please listen and get this, Nebuchadnezzar knew if we can get the young people, we've got the next generation. And please listen to me carefully. Satan ain't no dummy. He knows that if he can get the teenagers, if he can get the young people, he can end the church because the church is the... I I, I hear people say that young people are the church of the future. Give me a break. Young people are the church of the now. If you don't have teenagers and young people and senior citizens and young adults and every age in between, you don't have a sustaining church. The conquest was simple. And I invite you to put yourself in these boys' shoes for just a moment. You're a teenager living in Israel. By the way, the Bible calls these men children, so we believe that they were young teenagers. War has torn your country apart and you're taken captive by the conquering king you are relocated to a strange country 700 miles away from your homeland there are no parents there's no grandparents there's no relatives your style of worship and who you are as a people is ripped from your very existence You come from a nation that's built upon God Almighty. Now you found yourself in Babylon where not only are the language and the customs are different, but you are finding yourself in the middle of a foreign people who worship false gods and who idolize sexual immorality. You're taken as a young teenager to this strange world. You're surrounded by beliefs and actions that are contrary to everything you believe in. That's what happened to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jewish boys, the best of the best, the creme de la creme, the royalty, if you will, snatched from their homeland, as were many, many others. And at this point, the goal is not to enslave them, but the goal is to indoctrinate them. The goal is to brainwash them. We go from their conquest to their character. Look at chapter 1, verse number 4. Notice what it says. Children, whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. I hope you catch that verse. Because when the boys were snatched, when these four young men were taken, they were taken because of who they were and the quality of the character of the people that they were. They're well favored, which speaks to the fact they were handsome. 
They were skillful in wisdom. They had insight. They were cunning in knowledge. They had the ability to stand in the king's palace and the ability to learn the language of the Chaldeans. The very goal of this, folks, again, was not to enslave them, but to brainwash and indoctrinate them. Please understand that they wanted to eliminate all traces of Judaism. And these four young men, they wanted to eliminate every aspect of what it was that made them Jews. And that started by changing their names. Go to verse 7. Go to verse 6. Now among them were of the children of Judah. You notice it says among them. These weren't all of them. But among them were these children of Judah. Most of us don't even know them, especially the last three by their real names. Uh, they were called Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Interestingly, as you know, and as I shared with you repeatedly, names in the Bible typically mean something. For the sake of time, I won't go through all of these with you, but I will tell you that each of these four uh, had a clear reference to the God Jehovah or to Yahweh fact I'll tell you quickly Daniel meant God is judge Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious Mishael means I belong to God and Azariah means that Yahweh has helped their names clearly identify their faith go to verse 7 unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah of Abednego. Names that rob them of their identity as Jews. Names that now promote not God, but Baal. Names that speak to serving a different God and a different culture. May I pause just a moment and say, though our society does not seek to change the names of our young people, they are seeking uh, to be shaped into the culture. Uh, they are taught to accept the things uh, that our faith forbids. Through music, this is not going to be popular, but I'm going to say it anyway. Through music, through movies, through an invasion of social media, from an exposure to worldly education, the youth of America are being desensitized systematically to violence, to sinful practices, and to sexual immorality. Youth, and especially Christian youth, find themselves in an environment where they got to fit in or face ridicule, shame, and rejection. And as a result... As teenagers get older, many of them find themselves confused, disenchanted with the church, and more and more accepting of the culture around them than any generation before. And I'm going to pause just a moment and point a finger right smack dab at us. The reason teens, as they become adults, turn their back on the church is we have failed to equip them to face the world they have to face. 
we have failed to properly equip them to know how to take a stand. We have failed to teach them what the Bible says. We have failed to help them understand how do I tackle the world I have to face every day. America, God help us. I submit, as do most Bible scholars, is no longer a Christian nation. Most Bible scholars refer to our country today as a post-Christian country. Simply means that the world has rejected Christianity in favor of a more secular view of spirituality. Unfortunately, many mainline churches have adopted the values and the culture and the worldview around us today. And what used to be sin is no longer called sin, but is acceptable and simply a way of life. Christians are less accepted today in America than in any time in our church history. And to simply say, I believe the Bible makes you racist and bigoted. I want you to pause for just a moment and think about that. Today, to simply say, I believe the Bible. And the worldview makes you the enemy. The reason I say to you that this is a personal testimony chapter for me. A lot of you have heard me say this on many occasions, but I say often that ministry is my calling and education is my passion. I continue to believe that the way to change the world is to get them to know Jesus and then teach them how to help themselves. To show them the love of Jesus Christ and get them to understand that he died to save their souls. And then once you get them saved, you don't abandon them there. you got to teach them how to provide for themselves and their livelihood. But because education is my passion, I find myself in situations many, many times rubbing shoulders with some of the most brilliant minds in the country. And to say that I am a Christian, which I boldly say everywhere I go, instantly means I'm looked down upon and somehow viewed as less intelligent. To say that I am a Baptist preacher means that I can't have a brain in my head because people of intelligence and education have long abandoned the things of God. A lot of you have heard me say this, but I like telling it. Years ago at our camp meeting, uh, we sat under the preaching one night of my favorite preacher alive today, Brother Johnny Pope, an absolutely brilliant theologian. You sit and listen to him, I sit and listen to him, and I think to myself, I ought not to get in a pulpit again. In fact, my, my niece, after the service the night that he preached on the cup, the best message I've ever heard, bar none in my life, she called me and no, she sent me a text, and she said, Uncle Greg, I used to think you were the smartest preacher I knew. Now listening to him, I think you're LD. Amen. You can figure that out later. 
I asked if I could drive him to the hotel. We were simply out here at Najar's, and I asked if I could drive him to the hotel because I love him, and I just like to be around him. So they said, sure, go ahead and drive him over there. So I drove him that, that whole 12 steps from, from, from Najar's to the hotel, and he got out of the car, and he come, I was backing up, and he put his hand up, and he came back, and he said, you got a minute for me to chat with you? And I said, oh, God, do I ever. And he sat down beside of me, and he said, our colleges today desperately need a Christian voice. And I have to tell you, I was this close that night to saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't continue to do this anymore. And he looked at me, and God is my witness. He said, whatever you do, don't get out of the arena you're in because we've lost our influence in higher education. Folks, can I say to you, he's exactly right. But it's not just higher education. It's the world at large. So I want you to look at me now with not only what I call their trials, but I want to go into their testimony. Go to verse number 8, if you would, please. Go to verse number 8. The situation is described here, and the Bible says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Daniel purposed in his heart. I want everybody to look right here at me. I love you tonight, but you will never do anything that you don't make up your mind to do. I say to young people, you don't set boundaries on where you're, what you're going to do when you're in the back seat of a car. Amen. Because if you set the boundaries then, the boundaries ain't going to be good. You set boundaries. You purpose in your heart. You decide what you are and are not going to do before that situation greets you in the face. If you wait till then, it's too late. So you'll notice what it says in verse 8, but Daniel purposed past tense. He'd already done it in his heart. that He would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat no, with the wine which he drank, therefore, this is a key verse, star it, underline it, therefore, he requested. Please note, he didn't demand. He wasn't in a place to demand. He didn't stomp his feet. He didn't scream. He didn't shout. He didn't pound his chest. He requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I want you to understand what's happening. The four boys are in the midst of their brainwashing. They're in the midst of their change, if you will, uh, from Jews to Babylonians. And Daniel decides uh, that he will not defile God by taking the food that was contrary to the law. But he's not in a place to demand. He's not in a place to say, I will not. But he very politely and with all due reverence and respect says, May I please? Notice verse number 9. God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince and the eunuchs. Please listen to me. Daniel was wise enough to know 
there ain't no way, there ain't no way I'm going to convert this whole palace. There ain't no way I'm going to beat people over the head with a Bible. They got to see in me something that's different. And in so doing, he found favor with the ungodly ones. He found favor with the eunuchs. So jump down now, if you would, please, to verse number 11. Said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Now, if you write in your Bibles, underline the word pulse. It just means vegetables. Just means vegetables. All of which were allowed under the biblical law of the Old Testament. So Daniel, think about this for just a second. They're in the king's palace, and you know the king eats sumptuously. The king don't play. The king gets the best of the best, and the king wanted these boys who were being brainwashed to get the best of the best. But they looked at it, and they saw things that they knew defiled what God said they could and could not eat. And at that moment, they decided that they, they would use their diet to keep their identity as Jews. Let me say that one more time. They decided that they would use their diet, what they ate, to keep their identity as Jews. What they ate would determine who they were. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. But every time they refused a meal, they reminded themselves, we're different. Every time, and I have to tell you, if I'm in these boys' shoes and I see them over there eating steak, I ain't real happy that I got asparagus. Ever. Ever. And especially when in Babylonia started setting out poke chops and bacon and ham and you bringing me Brussels sprouts, I ain't a happy camper. And those of you who are looking at me crazy, you a bunch of lying sops. You feel the same way I do. Don't worry, honey, the spit will dry off in the morning. But every time, every time, they refused that meal. They were saying politely, respectfully, no thank you. We're different. Theirs wasn't a, look at me, we're better than you. Theirs wasn't a, we can't touch that. We've gotten the victory over that. Theirs was a, no thank you. I'm good with this. But I don't need to tell you that when somebody's eating nothing but asparagus and Brussels sprouts and all those other green leafy vegetables, that there's a good chance them jokers is going to lose some weight. These are teenage boys. They need protein. They need some hamburgers. They need some sloppy joes. But I want you to notice what happens after 10 days. 
Notice verse 14. Verse 13. Let our countenances be looked upon before thee, the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter. Prove them ten days. At the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Can I just pause a moment and say, God, show good. Show good. Because what happens is because these boys take a stand respectfully, lovingly, appropriately in a manner that is respectful to the king and their situation. And at the end of 10 days, not only do they look just as good as those boys that have been eating everything else, they look better. They proved God. They tested God. Jump down to verse number 17, please. As for the children... God gave them knowledge, skill, and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had an understanding in visions and dreams. The end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, and the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, the king communed with them. What? You got all of these people. And by the way, they weren't all Jews. This was the modus operandus of Nebuchadnezzar. He did this with every kingdom they took over. They would always bring in the best of the best, the wealthy kids, the intelligent kids, the best-looking kids. So you've got this whole pile of teenagers, most of them boys, to be very honest with you, uh, and they've all been eating sumptuously except these four, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, they've kept their, go their, their godly diet. They've kept the Old Testament law, and they're so good-looking at this point in terms of health. They're so well-maintained. They look so good and are so so smart and are so well favored by God that the king singles them out and says, I don't eat with them for. You tell me God doesn't work through evil men to accomplish his plans. You tell me that evilness stops God from doing what he knows he needs to do. Verse 19 says, King communed with him. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. Please get this. In all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Daniel continued even the first year of King Cyrus. So I submit to you that not only did they look good, not only were they well-preserved, if you will, but because of the blessings of God, because of the stand they took, God promoted them in a secular environment, in an anti-God environment, and you know this about Daniel, Daniel continued to keep the Word of God. So, we get back to the original question tonight, and I will go very quickly. What do we do? What do we do in the public school arena 
when nobody around us seems to know God? What do we do at the workplace when everybody around us seems to be anti-God? And even if they go to church and claim to be a Christian, it seems that their life doesn't bear out what they say they believe. I'm going to give you very quickly simple statements. And in weeks to come, we'll talk about these in depth, but I want to give them to you simply now. Number one, know that God is sovereign in all things, and you are where you are because you're supposed to be there. You've heard me say this a hundred times as we've studied the book of Esther. If you wait till you get someplace else to serve God, you'll never get there. Number two, you must live a holy, consistent life in front of lost people. As soon as they see you mess up, they will jump all over it. I'm not saying you've got to be perfect because you can't get there. But I'm saying you've got to live a consistent life in front of the lost. Number three, stand for what you know to be right without shame or fear. Be kind but firm. And stand against what you know to be wrong without apology. Be kind but firm. Refuse. Number four, refuse, refuse, refuse to adopt the ways of the world around you. Be different. Be different for the glory of God. This is my favorite one, probably, of the ones I'm giving you tonight. Speak up when you're asked about your faith and why you believe what you believe. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us to be ready to give an account for the hope you've got within you. In other words, uh, when you say, I can't do that, I can't go there, I can or I won't or I will or I must, and somebody looks at you and say, why? better know why. And the why ain't because the preacher said so. The why is because the word said so. Pray for God to give you faith, wisdom, and courage to live a godly life in front of other people. Parents, grandparents, teach your children the truth about the culture wars that we're engaged in. And make no mistake, it's a war. It's a war for the mind of your kids. Make them understand what the Bible says about fundamental issues that are no longer in favor. And please get this one. Love people. Love people. When they're different from you and when they disagree with you. Understand that we should not demonize the opposition. We should, boy, do we ever need that today. We should not demonize the opposition or those who disagree. It is very easy for us to point our fingers at people who walk in perversion and sin, but they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Live as a person of faith. This is your guidebook. Nothing else. Not Oprah. Not Dr. Phil. Not Sean Hannity. Amen. I watch the Fox News just like most of y'all do, but they're not the guidebook either. This is. Next, quickly. Be very careful 
about what you put out publicly on social media. Take a stand, but remember, if you're a Christian, you're one when you're online. You've heard me say this a thousand times. Nobody wins an argument in social media. Nobody. You can type until your fingers fall off. You're not convincing nobody of nothing. You know why? Because this is what does the convincing. Not our opinions. So we're going to talk a lot about these in weeks to come in depth. But I'm going to close tonight by saying this. This is my vision. I talked today to our men downstairs about being leaders of vision. I've got long-term plans that I've shared with our deacons, things that I hope to plot out for the next 5, 10, 20 years. If the Lord comes back between now and then, I'll let Ken take it over. Amen. But there's also an immediate vision as well. You understand that in order to accomplish the long-term vision, there's got to be some things that happen. Number one, I want SAGBC to be a place where sinners are loved all the way to the Savior. When somebody comes in here and they're lost, I don't care what they look like. Amen. I don't care what they're wearing. I don't care what they look like or what they smell like or where they've been. If they've come here to get help, honey, they're in the right place. I have figured out, I've made a mess of this many times, and I started figuring it out that when God changes the inside, He does a whole lot better on the outside than when I try to start on the outside. But I also want SAGBC to be a place where the saints are fed from the Scriptures. And I'll pause a moment and say, that's where churches are failing. We're not equipping our young people. It is wonderful to get excited and I hope when we go to teen conference they get pumped up and excited all over again but if the excitement stops the first day of school then we have failed to equip them for the battle ahead I want SAGBC to be a place where salvation is preached and separation is practiced you understand that's what those boys did in lovingness and kindness they separated themselves and said, we're different. Finally, I want SAGBC to be a place where Christians come and find strength to be part of the remnant. That group of people who won't bend, who won't budge, and who stay committed until the Lord takes us out of here. Let's stand to our feet tonight. Come on, Brother Ken, I'm going to ask you to do a quick invitation for us. Very simple question tonight. Very simple. Now, nobody's looking. I normally don't do this on a Sunday night, but I'm going to. Nobody's looking. Bow your heads for me. I want you just to be honest. Nobody's looking. Just be honest. Pastor Greg... I need to take on the character of these boys and I need to be different where I am because of where you have me. I don't need to be like everybody else and I need to work on that. I'm struggling with some of that.